At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit FreedomHealthWorks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Today, we are talking to Dr. Grace Torres-Hodges, a physician owner and founder of Torres Hodges Podiatry down in Pensacola. Now, Dr. Torres Hodges has been a direct care specialist for five years now, going our sixth year after spending 15 years in what we call the traditional healthcare system. So we're gonna start this episode off with a bang. Uh, Dr. Grace, thanks for joining us. Now tell us, what was your primary motivation almost a little over five years ago when you said enough is enough I'm doing this myself and I'm kicking insurance out of the exam room. Well, first off, thank you, Chris, for uh, inviting me to be here today um, and share my story. My aha moment came when I was working late night and doing charts and trying to get bullet points on my exam from the day and making sure that I had enough points to make it worth the code for the CPT code. And my husband saw me struggling because we had probably canceled dinner that night or something uh, and said, what are you doing? Is anything that you're doing here contributing to the clinical care of your patient? And I go, no, this is just extra stuff so that we get paid for it because the insurance is requiring it. And it was that combination of just many, many late nights of doing that, that my husband would pop that question into my head. And then I had an aha moment again that really solidified everything when our our bathroom needed to be fixed and I had to call the plumber. And um, what happened was, was that I went on Facebook, on social media and asked for recommendations for a plumber. From that, uh, I was able to find somebody and came. he came over and he examined the problem and gave me my options and gave me a price. And then I got to make my decision. And after that, when we decided on price and him to work on it, he fixed it. I paid him. I was satisfied. He was satisfied. I gave him a good review later on and realized why in the world I can't do that with just regular medicine. Um, I just want to give a special uh, shout out to plumbers there. You just had a surgeon say that uh, she was jealous of the way you're able to do business. You know, everything's related to each other. Plumbing, when it comes to circulation, you know, the carpenter, when it comes to orthopedics. So, but it was like one of those, when the law of attraction, it all came about at the same time you know, then I realized, you know what, I can't do this. Why can't I do that? There's got to be a way. And then I started researching it. And then I went to my first um, AAPS meeting, uh, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. It was a one day um, how to thrive uh, without insurance seminar in Dallas. And this was in 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. And I got introduced to other doctors that were actually thinking the same way I was. That's how it got started. But um, from there, you plan your practice. You relook at your practice as a private practice uh, owner since 2000. You know, I knew all ends of my practice. I knew, uh, and I'm a bit of a geek. So I knew per patient visit 
how much it was costing us. I understood overhead. I was fortunate that I grew up in a, a family of doctors um, who had private practices already in the heyday of medicine. And so just because I was free labor through my high school and college years, I learned the business of running uh, running a practice when it was still all paper, when it was still just talking to the patient, making appointments, when they would do phone calls, you didn't worry about beepers. It was a nice, nice way of doing things. And um, it was probably a lot of community involvement too. I'm absolutely. sure everybody knew absolutely. the doctor, they trusted him. It wasn't mm-hmm. just another white coat with a stethoscope walking into the room, asking a bunch of questions, never looking you in the eye and then leaving. Right, exactly. What was it like? I'm, I'm curious, when you first went to that, you said it was an AAPS meeting back in 2013. I mean, that's very early in even the concierge medicine movement, let alone the direct primary care movement or the direct care movement. What was it like when you walked into a room and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm not the only one who, who is thinking this way. I'm not the only one hurting like this. It was actually reassuring because of the fact that At first, you're thinking, no, you can't do this because medicine is always you have to go through insurance companies and get referrals that way. As a specialist, I have to wait, particularly if you were dealing with HMOs, you had to wait for the primary to refer over to you. But um, it was definitely reassuring. It was eye-opening. It was extremely educational. Um, One of the things, though, that was a bit surprising because you don't learn this stuff when I was a resident, we never, even when I was a student, we didn't learn about the the business end of medicine. And it's not so much even running the business, it's the insurance, the contracting. Um, once you sign away your commitment to a an insurance company, you're at their, you, you work for them. Um, and there's this misconception in your head that you don't realize until you have this awakening from a meeting such as that, that, you know, no, my asset is my skill set and my knowledge and the insurance companies early on, you're like happy because you've got a job. But then as time goes on and they start adding, I, I went through the whole gyration of when we went from paper, I was still paper when I first started. And then we had e-prescription and it was the carrot and stick incentive um, because they, they tell you, you you'll get it, uh, in, you'll, you'll be incentivized to do something and then they'll penalize you if you don't do it by this date. And then EHR was like that also, and PQRS, macro, MIPS, all that. But every time there was like something added more and more and it was taking you away from the patient. But mm-hmm. it was the, the meeting was definitely eye-opening, particularly the penalties associated with not following rules that had nothing to do with clinical care. That was what I found from that. Yeah, it's like they chink away at the armor, right? Just a little bit here. It's a little bit here. Oh, just put some codes in. It's going to be fine. And then you get next year, something else layers on. And then something else layers on. And then by the time you realize it's like, I'm no longer sitting on this raft in the ocean. I'm sitting here treading water and just barely, you know, just pulling you down. And and we hear that a lot. And, you know, kudos to you for recognizing it and getting the hell out of there before you just became beaten down because- you know, one thing that I kind of heard you allude to when you walked into that room of like-minded people, it's like this breath of fresh air. And you had so many administrators insurance companies say, you can't go out and do this on your own. Independent medicine is dead. Mm-hmm. And now you're saying, no way in hell that's true. You Independent know, medicine is not dead. I am able to do this, even though you're not going to go ahead and teach me it during med school or even undergrad or even during residency on how to do a lot of this stuff. I'm going to go and figure it out. And I'm going to get with a lot of smart, like-minded people. And we're going to figure it out together because something has got to give. 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, um, it's Pavlov, I think, that said, if you want to learn a, a new idea, read an old book. This is not something that is brand new. I mean, this is going back to old school medicine. And again, I, I had that opportunity to see that and, and live through it as a kid. Shout out to my pediatric dentist because he does it like that also. He doesn't do insurance when, when the kids were younger, but it, it's definitely doable. And I think that's what happens with doctors. We get overwhelmed um, because there's so many things in addition to the clinical component, clinical components we, we know. I mean, we're the, you know, the people that go to medical school are the, the smartest, the best, and the most driven individuals, but they get bogged down by this uh, this third party that is instigating all these regulations and, and rules. Yeah, which is always very fascinating to me because I would add another trait onto those people who go and successfully complete medical school is that they're very competitive people as well. Maybe not completely like extroverted, I'm going to go out there and kick your butt, but internally they're going to say, I'm going to be the best, get out of my way. Right. Yet so many physicians just lay down when it comes to administrators and when it comes to regulators. And I'm like, well, this is completely against your personality. And I think that's what we see a lot of people just giving up. A lot of physicians just give up and say, mm -hmm. well, this is just the way it is. I'm going to just sit here and take it for five years until I hit my number or they leave medicine altogether. And right. it's, it's that personality aspect of it that we need. I need that as a patient and non-clinical person. I absolutely need you know, our best and brightest out there for when I'm getting ill or my family or whatever it is. But I want somebody out there who hasn't given up yet. And, but I think it's also, it, it's the result of four years, you know, you're an undergrad for four years and getting into medical school, that's the competitive component. But once you're in medical school, it's a very calculated and um, very specific curriculum that you follow. I mean, you know, see one, do one, teach one. Um, but through four years of medical school, three years of residency, and some going on to fellowship and further residency after that. That's seven years that you've been basically not introduced to anything besides just patients, 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 and you're working within typically a hospital system. So you become what you're surrounded by. And one of the things that I've been trying to do in the last year or two is to really reach out to students, medical students and residents. There's a fear in residency because you have to just basically follow your attendings and everything like that. But at least plant the seeds so that it can germinate again later on once you're out. Yeah. I'm curious. Do you think some form of business education should be a requirement in medical schools and residencies? I do. And, and I think a lot of the schools are beginning to do that. I know my alma mater is doing that. And I teach over at Florida State uh, College of Medicine. Uh, they, they are incorporating that also. But it's not just the business of medicine. They need to incorporate that contracting, that how insurance basically regulates what happens to physicians. But it's, it's even more than that because it's, it's introducing free market. You have to introduce free market principles, which is basically the same principles that you use in order to get into medical school. It's the initiative, the, you know, the drive, marketing yourself, all of that. I mean, we do that in business, but we did that when we were trying to get into school also. But for some reason, seven years, you, you, have amnesia. Inter very interesting point. And, and I tend to sit here and nod and say, yeah, I mean, that's a great point because, you know, you're working your tail off and you're competing hard to be the best. And then you get through those doors and then it's almost like everything's taken care of. And it says, oh, doc, just go, just go take care of these people 
don't worry about what's going on back here. Nothing exactly. to see here. And then once people wisen up, uh-oh, I gave away way too much. And what I got was only a near-term, short-term gain. I'm screwed for the long-term here. Right, right. So I want to talk a little bit more about you you know, walking in again, I, I love, I love just that visual of you walking into a conference room full of like-minded people and everyone's kind of looking around saying, holy cow, I'm not the, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only person who who's doing this. Did you find that you were one of the rare specialist podiatrists um, looking to do this in more of that specialty direct care world? What was that like? And talking to your peers, were they primary care? Where were they? So my first introduction to it outside of that meeting, um, I actually met a podi- another podiatrist at that meeting. Ironically, we were, I think, the only two podiatrists at that meeting. The majority of them were primary care. There were about three other specialists, uh, a dermatologist, a gastroenterologist, and a rheumatologist. Um, the rheumatologist is actually from my hometown. And so she had gone out and had opted out of Medicare. That was probably the awakening because opting out of Medicare, which was the most punitive of all the insurance companies and dictates a lot of what the other insurance companies did. The penalties associated with not complying with that was something that I actually, unfortunately, I didn't pay attention to. I let my office manager pay attention to. But as I explain it to other doctors after going, I was like, I think I'm going to drop Medicare. And they go, you're crazy. How can you do that? You know, especially in podiatry, we have a wide array of demographics, but probably about 40% being Medicare age, you're going to drop one of your bigger groups that you take care of. And then the, the fear factor sets in and you're like, can I do that? And then I just talk, I talked to my patients even before I went direct, I tended to spend a lot of time talking to patients uh, in the room and get their idea. And when I explained my aha moment with the plumber, they actually got it because I said, do you read your EOBs? And I had a lot of well-educated patients that were surprised that, yeah, I'm surprised that you didn't get paid for this and you only got this much and all. And it's not to knock insurance. Insurance is needed, but it's there for catastrophic things. So you don't get into financial disarray. Um, should be. Should yeah, should be. be. I'm exactly. going to interject on that one. Should yeah, 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 yeah. Again, um, leading, leading cause of bankruptcy is, is medical bills for insured patients in the United States. Right. But even, you know, people who are uninsured, what's unfortunate is they're not educated. Or, and I, I feel now, especially now, compelled to tell patients, like, ask for a cash price, because <laughs> otherwise you will you will get charged an insurance rate. And that's, that's the thing we talk about a lot. Go in there. We forget to shop around when it comes to medical care. Right. We do it with everything else in our life, but not with health care. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's re-educating everybody. It's re-educating doctors. It's re-educating the community and our patients. But I th- I'm, I'm very hopeful. I'm very optimistic with it. And um, I, I didn't get a lot of, of support early on from my own colleagues. They all were doubters. I think everybody was like, yay, go ahead, do it, do it. But they didn't want to be the first one. So I was the early adopter. We've heard some pretty good stories about <laughs> physicians doing what, exactly what you said. And there's you know si- secondary sideline betting pools to see how long they would last in practice. <laughs> before right, they came right. running back. And, and, it, and it drives me nuts. And, and I laugh about that, but it drives me nuts because it's like, here you have an incredible potential moving, driving force who is too afraid to actually go out and do something. It's a lot easier to sit back and complain about it and kind of poke fun and, and make some jokes about somebody else going out there, sticking their neck out, 
working their tail off to build this and do something better for their patients. Right. And so, you know, we joke about it, but at the same time, it's like, I wish that didn't happen. I wish you had a hundred percent support from everybody saying, how can I help you rather than, yeah, you're not going to make it. I, I, it is definitely changed. I will tell you having gotten out five years ago, the difference in the last two years, probably, and I think COVID had a lot to do with it. It was like an eye-opening because when everything elsewhere shut down, it was those of us who were still in direct care. You know, people will go out and seek you. You run the show. You know, te- I was doing telemedicine before it became Vogue, you know, that type, that type yeah. thing. So I think it showed a lot of people that it can, especially doctors and patients, um, that it can be done and it can be done properly. Everybody needs a trailblazer. The old saying, pioneers get slaughtered uh, when it comes to new business ideas. Not necessarily true, as long as you're a very smart pioneer and you know mm-hmm. where, to, where to go and, and pick your battles. So you mentioned 40% of your patients were Medicare. Obviously, right. switching to a direct care model, you're going to say, goodbye, federal government, goodbye, regulations. I'm not playing by your rules anymore. But you're looking at potentially cutting off almost half of your revenue stream. What right. happened next? So again, it, it was it's preparation on that. You know, the first meeting that I went to was almost three years before I actually dropped Medicare. You just have to really plan, not just in your office. I buckled down and started, you know, saving, making sure that we cut costs as much as possible, anticipating a decline in overall revenue for the next year. Again, you get your patients involved because they are the ones who you are taking care of, and they're your customer. And I, I don't call patients customers, but you have to treat them like a customer. It's a business when you're independent and you're private practice. And that probably is a big thing that has to be emphasized to anyone that goes into private practice medicine is that you are a business. So you have to run it like a business. It's not going to be everybody caters to you. You're actually, that's your service out to the community. But I educated my patients. Um, and actually, Medicare kind of helped me a little bit. And again, I'm not knocking Medicare because it's there for, I understand when patients need it and for, for major major medical, but they were getting rid of a lot of my services already. Routine care, you know, just because a patient doesn't have diabetes or vascular problems or neuropathy, if you're in your 80s and you have back problems, you cannot reach your feet and cut your toenails. And something as simple as cutting the toenails, if left untreated, can lead to a cut, ulcer, infection, amputation. Patients who had the shoe program, that was a big thing with like durable medical equipment. It's for diabetics. Well, what about if you have rheumatoid arthritis and your toes are all hammered and it's gnarly and, and you can't wear a regular shoe? So the person with diabetes gets their shoes covered, but the person that had rheumatoid arthritis with a foot deformity doesn't. You know, there's a discrepancy there. You know, we say a lot that the direct care is the great leveling force in the medical industry. And I think you just proved that. Why leave it up to some bureaucrat or somebody, if commercial insurance, somebody way, way away who just looks at a bunch of numbers on our sheet and says, yes, we're going to cover diabetics for shoes, but not the rheumatoid patients. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. You're taking something that is so localized and so intimate that only you can know that about your patients. Yet again, going back to the fact that we forget to ask about pricing when it comes to medical care, we just throw our hands up and say, oh, the government's going to take care of it or this faceless insurance regulator is going to take care of me. 
thinking they have our best interests in mind. And you just blew that out of the water completely. You know, it wasn't just on my senior patients like that. I mean, even my younger patients with private private insurances. Um, a kid comes in with an ingrown toenail on both toes, maybe because they're a soccer player or something like that, and they they did they picked at it. Um, the insurance company will only will want you to only do one toe, but they came in with two toes that were bothering them, they would rather me, they will pay for it if I bring them back and do the the other toe the next day. It has to be a different day, a different date of service. I never did that. I just swallowed that because it's not the right thing to do for your patient. And and probably the worst of it was, you know, I, I know my patients. One of the things with my diabetics is that they come in regularly to see me for preventative care in a means to avoid them from having the high cost of, of medical care and complications and getting into the hospital. I had one individual who nicked his shin on um, when he was working on his boat, and he had a, 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 an ulcer on that. I looked at it and I said, you know what, I've got to debride that. I want to bring you into the operating room. We can do it outpatient, but I need to get an MRI so I can delineate how much are we going to have to clean up on this so I can plan properly. So I requested for a stat um, MRI and it was denied by the insurance company because they wanted me to do local wound care, put them in a cast and do dressing changes for the next four weeks. I said, forget that. And so I, I had to play the system. I, I knew what could get done. I sent him to the emergency room. So what does he do? Now he racks up a, a higher bill in the emergency room. He got his MRI. I ended up doing his case in the hospital instead of an outpatient facility. Mm. Um, his Yes, his insurance paid for it, but is that really cost-saving? You know, it, it, it didn't, in the end, always, the patient is the one that I'm paying attention to. It's mm. a shame that he had to go through that. And I will tell you, he was, he, he was, uh, unfortunately, he passed away last year, but he was my best advocate for the reason for direct care. The fact you bring that up too is really great. I tell doctors a lot because we get this we get this question a lot, you know, from Freedom Health Works, helping doctors start their practices uh, and help support them from that. It says, well, they say, well, wait a minute. If I give somebody access to my cell phone, they're going to be calling me all day, every day, if I don't build barriers or limits on how many times they could come to the office to see me, what happens if they're taking up all of our spots? And I say, well, that's great because that person is going to be the person going out there and telling everybody they know that they finally found a doctor who's going to listen to them. Right. I, I think mean, what I you just said reinforces that. Yeah. I, I think when you make someone accountable and responsible by knowing the price of what you're putting a value to that. You're not competing on price. You're actually competing on value. That's what it comes down to. Um, but I give my cell phone number to my to my um, post-op patients um, because they need me for that. And in, in 20, 21 years of practice, I've had maybe one person abuse it, but that's it. You know, it's respectful. You respect them. They respect you. Uh, it's, it's amazing, right? How that how that plays <laughs> out. Figure, you know? <laughs> I, I, yeah, you treat you treat patients like people, and guess what? They're going to treat you like they're a tr- you're a trusted part of their family. And and here we go. Uh, once again, we're talking to Dr. Grace Torres Hodges, uh, physician, owner, and founder of Torres Hodges Podiatry. I want to spend a little bit of time in, in diving into your economic model. I think this is one of the biggest barriers that holds 
or I, I guess will present uncertainty for a lot of physicians who are specialists or surgeons saying, this all sounds great. I depend on X thousand number of patients around here to make my practice. I can't build a membership, whatever it is. There's a lot of different variation among specialists. So give us kind of a rundown of how you built out your economic model. So first and foremost, like I said, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to knowing how my entire practice works down to how much each sheet of paper that we use is in the office. Um, I have been very blessed um, with an office manager that that basically works for free, who's my husband. He kind of oversees things, but he's able to do that away from the office because his job previously was to... Um, do the follow-ups on secondaries for insurance. So once we, he actually got rid of his own job, which was hilarious. Um, It wasn't his only job, but it was one of the main jobs he was doing. But when we cut down on overhead, you know, um, that became a big thing. The, my, my staff is um, the, they multitask. They are not just doing front office and just back office. They lean towards things, but everybody can rotate. In there, I have two staffers with me. Um, when I planned for, particularly when uh, opting out of Medicare, which again was the big one, but the same with whether it was any of the other private insurances, Blue Cross, Aetna, Cigna, go down the list, you had to know what was your patient per, uh, your price per patient value on each of, what was your reimbursement rate, basically. Mm-hmm. And I started knocking out the one that gave me the lowest, whoever was paying 50 cents on the dollar, they were the first ones to go. And then each year, you know, I, I started doing it slowly. Um, that way, you, you do have to plan plan properly. Like I said, I had a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a help because many services weren't covered anymore. And so I had already established a few uh, non-insurance based procedures in the office, whether it was uh, general care for patients coming in, whether it was um, for me orthotics. I also, when I was still on insurance, explained and went over EOBs with the patient because they really don't know that. And when I showed them, this is actually how much I got paid for your procedure, your surgery, and this is what the facility got. And this is what the other doctors, the anesthesia team got. And they go, well, why is it less than what you're asking? Because the insurance is, is making us do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but planning the day, what I ended up figuring out is how much do I need to make at the end of the week? It's like budgeting your house for monthly budget. And how much do I need to make at the end of the week for salaries, for overhead, everything? I need to reach that in just a little bit more. You don't go into medicine to make money. If you're going to go into medicine, I mean, if you're going to want to make money, don't go into medicine. You can do well and, and be comfortable living with medicine, but you also... You also have to make people, I think the worst thing that happened was the copay because it, it made it sound like it was a prepaid, <laughs> prepaid in that there was a, there's a huge difference between price and cost. And long story short, with regards to the economic model that I work on is that I just make sure that I meet a, a criteria per, per day. Um, my surgeries are bundled. I do, again, working more on, on bringing services together that make the patient happy to return. On my website, I actually post my prices. I talk to a lot. This is not something that you can, you really can't do it solo. You have to work with others and watch how others who have gone ahead of you. Surgery Center of Oklahoma is a a big one, particularly for surgeons, because you can really help 
uh, by talking, talking to them, but more importantly, showing patients how they already have done the homework for you. They've shown the differences between facility-based versus in-office versus in a uh, direct method of paying. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I hope that, you know, that kind of gives you an idea of what, what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, you did a lot of research and you did the numbers and, and mm-hmm. that's great. You mentioned that your surgeries are packaged. What's that look like? So there are two ways that patients can um, have surgery with me. First off, I do a lot now in office because I do a lot of minimally invasive surgeries that can be done in the office without any facility whatsoever. So as far as anything that's in the office, that is completely uh, packaged. The anesthesia, the equipment that I use, the facility is my office, the surgeon's fee, and including the post-op care. So I'm able to to set a price for that. Um, As I educated patients even before when I was on um, third-party payers, uh, there's a difference between people don't realize that there are individual players when it comes to having surgery in a hospital. There's the anesthesia, there's the um, the equipment used, there's the room rental for the, the OR, then there's the surgeon's fee. The surgeon does not get everything over there. So when it comes to um, hospital-based or ambulatory surgery centers, I've explained to patients, you have two ways of doing it. If you plan to use your insurance you can have your insurance filed if the facility's on that and have the anesthesia covered by that. And I will just quote to you beforehand and negotiate a price with them, my surgeon fee. If they don't want, because they have such a high deductible and they're never going to reach it anyway, I've also, with certain surgery centers, I've negotiated a fee for me to use their facility and incorporated that into a price that then I present to the patient, knowing that we're not filing to any insurance whatsoever. Now, do you incorporate outside of specialty, do you incorporate memberships or packages or more episodic pricing? What does that look like? It's it's kind of hard to do with specialty care, and, and particularly in mine. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to do a membership-based model. I, I know some other docs who do wound care, they've been doing a little bit more on membership, but obviously you don't want them to be a chronic wound patient because you actually want them to heal <laughs> eventually. Um, You know, um, there are some that are doing it for like diabetics. There's some doing for geriatrics. It really becomes, I'm here for when you need me. There's enough of a need in the community. And I've fortunately built a reputation enough that patients see the value of what I'm doing. I continually market. You have to understand that it, it, it doesn't end when once you start having your, your um, patients coming in and um, you still have to continue to maintain that quality. Um, mm-hmm. I always laughed when the insurance companies were always talking about um, quality uh, factors uh, and everything needed to meet X criteria, X criteria. The, the best form of quality is whether or not a patient will return to you or will refer another patient to you. But yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge, but it's it's doable. Put yourself out there. And uh, again, people will always need, people will step on things. I live in a beach community. People step on things all the time. So I'm there, <laughs> particularly summer, because um, people are barefoot. Um, you know, yeah. shoot recommendations. Kids, they injure themselves. Adults injure themselves. This week alone, everybody seems to have hit the the door jam and fractured their toe. So, you know, and, and stuff like that. I'll, I'll use that as an example. You can go then to the emergency room or to even urgent care and get the hospital consultation, the uh, x-ray. That's one. You can come to my office and it's one price for 
the consultation, the x-rays, and the treatment. You know, so automatically they, they can see it visually what's going on. You mentioned marketing. What has been most effective that you've seen? Obviously, word of mouth is going to be huge. And we see word of mouth and, and friend to friend or friend to colleague referrals are mm-hmm. 60, 65, even 70% of a new patient enrollments. How do you fill in that other? And, and if those percentages hold true for you too, how do you fill that other 30 to 40%? You know, social media is probably one of the best things now. It's economical also. So lunch and learns, um, webinars, question and answers. I'll speak before groups. I'll, I'll, visit, I'll visit doctors, particularly like pediatricians, go over to their offices, meet their referral, mm. referral um, folks. Um, outside of that, I'll talk at churches and schools. You know, you just, you, again, you put yourself, you put yourself out there. Um, I try not to spend a lot on actually paying for, um, you know, in the old days you used to do ads in the phone book or, or, you know, I'll sponsor teams, you know, like a little league team and, and, and school teams and have my advertising in that. But in general, I try and do it personally because it's all about the relationship you're making with the patient and um, who you're taking care of. Now, you mentioned, uh, and we talked about some critics, what's like the top two or three points that you've been hit with for people who either refuse to understand what you're doing or how this works or really why insurance-based or government-based payer medicine is not the most ideal for patients. What do they say? One of the first things I remember, they always say, you know, I can't believe that you dropped insurance. That means I can't see you anymore. And I say, actually, on the contrary, that's not the case. I actually have just now opened my entire panel to anybody. I love that. Because I can see you, you know, what you have to remember, the healthcare and health insurance are two different things. Healthcare is what I'm providing for you. The way it's paid is what the health health insurance was paying for it. I just don't agree that health insurance is using your money wisely. And, you know, so that's why I'm giving you a price so that, you know, from a patient's perspective, that's always been one of the big ones. Right. And you just mentioned, you just mentioned a a t-shirt, you know, that we have on our website that, Insurance does not equal health care and just drill that yeah, into people, out. right? <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, that's, that's a big one. I tell doctors, I go, I didn't change how I'm practicing medicine. I changed how I interact with the system. That's all I did. I think the fear always is, is when it comes down to making ends meet at the end for a lot of physicians, particularly those that are in debt. Um, I just paid off my loans just five years ago also. So I, it took me a while to pay off my loans. So I, I, I get it. But if you crunch your numbers properly you can and plan properly, you, you, it's achievable. It may take a while, but it's achievable. And I think one of the other big critics is that you must not, you're all in it for the money and you don't care about poor people at all when you do stuff like this. And again, opening up your panel to anybody and everybody, when you are under, particularly like Medicare, you can't give people discounts. You have to abide by the insurance rate. Outside of that whole realm, you can barter, you know, Mm -hmm. and negotiate with your patients. The other thing also is, for a physician, it's a much more efficient use of your time because you're actually getting 100% for what you're putting out there. My schedule is such that I now have time to volunteer more. So I do volunteer at our uh, community clinic. I spend, I spend time there and take care of patients there. So for patients and people that are saying, no, you know, the doctors are just doing it for the money. No, you know, we are doing it to make a living, to pay for our staff and take care of their families. 
But personally, I, I try and give back also, and I'm able to help more people as a result of it. Do people's jaws just drop when you say exactly what you just said? <laughs> Actually, I can charge Sometimes. people. I can charge people zero dollars now for the first time in my career because those benevolent programs that you thought were taking care of people, they don't actually do that. Right, right. And I think it's until you realize how many people are in the community that don't, that fall in between the cracks that aren't being taken care of. Um, I will t- again, those patients that I see in the clinic. They're godsend. I mean, I get so much out of them as much as hopefully they get a lot of what I'm doing for them from me, but I get a lot out of them also. They, they spread word too, you know, they have, they have relatives. They may be the one that doesn't have insurance, but they have relatives that have insurance or friends that have insurance. And then they're able to come to me. And then the the conversation of insurance even goes out the window. They just want to see that doctor. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter whether or not I'm on their insurance or not. Yeah, doctor actually listens to them, takes the time, actually fixes the issue, not just treating mm-hmm. uh, right. a symptom. And we obviously see eye to eye on a lot of different things of direct care in all its forms being the great equalizer for the United States healthcare industry. I don't like the word system very much because that's more of a hospital system. But as a right. whole, mm-hmm. like you said, now anybody can come see me regardless of uninsured, commercial insurance, ACA insurance. Medicare, Medicaid, it doesn't matter. Right. If you've got X amount of dollars, you can come see me. If you don't, call me, let's walk through it. And there are chances are that you're going to actually bend over backwards to make sure they get the right care that they need and that they've either put off from before mm-hmm. or that they can't get anywhere else. And I applaud you in your efforts and your practice. Last question for you. And this is the fun question, right? On each episode, what is the perfect healthcare industry look like to you? You got your magic wand, you're, you're the either president of the United States and you have all powers to reform just this industry. What do you do? I think it's golden rule. Treat people like you like to be treated yourself. Understand um, the things that you can change. And from a physician's perspective, because I'm working from that realm, understand that my asset is valued by people but I want to be able to, to give that to, to others freely and without interference from a third party. I think it's going to take a, an effort um, both on the part of physicians and also educating the community. We've just gotten so used to having everything just kind of handed to us. There's some effort that has to, to, to take place on both parts from the, from the patient and also from the physician. Again, insurance is, is there for is therefore protection against risk from, from catastrophic things. But as we've realized, they're almost playing puppeteer. If you're signed to a third-party payer as a physician, they're dictating what your worth is and what your reimbursement is. But from a patient's perspective, they're the ones also dictating whether or not you're going to get the service or not because they're paying out. And they're the ones holding your wallet. So until I think it's, it's education, I think it's, it's respecting both parties with that. I, I wish there was a, a, a simple way, but I'm going to do my part. Well, that's the grassroots movement, right? If every physician did their part and are doing what you're doing, I think things would change maybe literally overnight. And I think they are beginning to come to that realization. Many, many people are. So, and I, I could tell you your show and many other organizations that promote direct care and uh, free market, their voices are being heard out there. 
I appreciate that very much. And all we can do is help spread the word, right? Absolutely. Dr. Grace, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you spending some time and joining us here on the show. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. That's Dr. Grace Torres Hodges, physician owner and founder of Torres Hodges Podiatry. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. The new administration has big plans for your health insurance, changes that can limit your choices. The Affordable Care Act created a one-size-fits-all plan. Healthcare is not a one-size-fits-all problem. The premise of the ACA is that coverage equals care. It does not. This is Eric Wilson from iSelf Incorporated, and I recently saved a family in their 50s almost $600 per month with our free market plan. Act now. Protect yourself with a plan that cannot be canceled. This is a nationwide PPO plan, which allows you to pick your doctors and hospitals. Start saving 30 to 60% today. If you are self-employed, purchase your own health insurance, or are uninsured, you can lock in a private plan managed by you, not the government. Call me, Eric Wilson, an expert with 17 years experience at 888-448-5370. That's 888-448-5370. Or go to iSellHealth.com. That's iSellHealth.com. A free market, affordable approach to healthcare. I look forward to speaking with you. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.